Um, so we're here in 2 Samuel, and the, the, the readings for this week ended in a bad place. Um, the, the tragic portion of David's life we've uh, started to touch on. But I don't want to move on to that yet because there's some very important things about David that we need to know um, during his, his rise to the throne um, and the establishment of the throne in Jerusalem. So last week uh, I talked about David as a man after God's heart. A man after God's heart. And what that phrase means, after God's heart, it means in line with God's priorities, in line with what God wants, right? Uh, in one accord. And actually, people can be after each other's heart. It, when their hearts are aligned, they're after the same thing. But the first point I mentioned about a man after God's heart is that he knows how to worship, all right? And I, I want to I want to hang out there tonight because the early part of David's uh, reign is all about worship. I mean, that's the thing that is, that is on his heart. That's what's guiding most of his decisions is the worship of Yahweh in Israel. Um, so we're going to zoom in on that before we move on to, yes, the more tragic portion of David's life. Um, just where we are in the story, Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. After this, there is a very rocky transition of power, okay? Nothing like the, the American inauguration where we pride ourselves on the peaceful transition of power. That's nowhere to be found in uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel. So the opening chapters are lingering. Uh, so Ishbosheth is made king by some of Saul's loyals, uh, loyalists. And there's, there's sort of some tension there. Uh, David's guys are claiming the throne for him, but in all the wrong ways. And his heart is really grieved at a lot of their actions. At the end of chapter 4, he says, ah, he's kind of crying out in frustration. These sons of Zeruiah, they are more severe than I am. Their heart is not after David's heart. And therefore, their heart is not after God's heart. They're more severe. This is not how David wants to set about claiming his throne. Um, David is anointed finally by Israel as a whole, and he is set up formally as the king, right? He was anointed by Samuel back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. But here he's anointed by the people and acknowledged by them as their king. As a, as a, and at that point, it's what we call the united monarchy, okay? This is a very brief time in Israel's history, about 80 years, uh, David's reign is 40 years. Uh, well, Saul's reign is, is 40 years as well. But then Solomon, after Solomon, the kingdom splits in 10 northern tribes and then the tribe of Judah. Um, but in chapter 5, he's, he is anointed as king by the people and his anointing is sort of renewed. And uh, also in chapter 5 is when he uh, takes the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, all right? Jerusalem has, is almost synonymous with Israel from that point on, right? It is the heart of Israel, Jerusalem. But it's not the center of the people yet. So he takes Jerusalem, and the very first thing he does is he wants to bring the ark, all right? Uh, we're going to talk about that. The, those two chapters, chapter 6, he brings the ark to Jerusalem. Chapter 7, uh, God makes a covenant with David. And this is one of the most significant portions of Scripture, in the Old Testament. Anytime God establishes a covenant with a character in the Old Testament, these are major tent pegs of the story of redemption. All right? Um, so, hopefully you know this by now, but the story of First and Second Samuel is also retold in First Chronicles. All right? And there's sort of two different versions of the story. Uh, we're going to go through Chronicles in a couple of years. Um, the chronicler tells the story in a different way than the author of Samuel and Kings. The author of Samuel and Kings is really interested, particularly in the book of Samuel, is really interested in the family, the inner workings of the family of David, all right? The, the strife in his household, okay? Uh, the chronicler is, is more interested in kind of the national history. It's sort of a nationalist account. Um, so we have this really messy... Uh, account of David's life in Samuel, and then we have more of a, a kingly 
nationalistic account in Chronicles, and I'm glad we have both, because I actually want to look at some of the Chronicles account tonight uh, to show some of the uh, some of the, the reforms that David brings to Israel at this point. But in 2 Samuel, it's it's a lot of personal narratives and a lot of revolving around David himself. Personal narratives. Uh, Chronicles really deals more with the details of the temple in particular. And so that's what I want to look at tonight. Um, the story in Samuel, but, but bring in some stuff from uh, Chronicles. Um, a couple things. Number one, that David... Uh, he is setting up, he begins to set up the kingdom and, and in a central location, right? He sets Jerusalem as the capital. But then at the center of Jerusalem, he wants to bring the ark. And his very first acts as king um, are to establish regular worship in, uh, before the ark of the covenant. To establish regular worship before the ark of the covenant. So his very first reforms as king are, are ones of, of worship, all right? And so, really what I want to, the, the main thing I want to talk about is David and the priority of worship. The priority of worship for David, the king of Israel. There's an interesting verse in Acts 15. Acts 15 is the first church council. Uh, Gentiles are getting saved, and they have to figure out what to, what to tell some of these apostles that are going around and welcoming Gentiles into the kingdom of God. How are Jews and Gentiles going to live with each other? And uh, in, in verse 15 of Acts 15, um, uh, verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And this is from Amos 9. After this... I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is a prophecy of the messianic age uh, that the Messiah is one like David But what's the prophecy say? One of the main things that's going to happen when Messiah comes is he's going to rebuild the tent of David. Rebuild the tent of David. And so that's what I want to look at. The tent of David is really a symbol for David's priority of worship. Okay? So let's go to 1 Samuel 6. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 6. It's really interesting. In chapter 6 of First and Second Samuel, there's some interesting parallels there. They both have to do with the ark. So in chapter 6, a couple things happen. He brings the ark to Jerusalem, uh, but then there's the whole thing with Uzzah, right? Uh, Uzzah, they, they bring it on a new cart. And what was so bad about that? A couple things. Number one, it's not how the law of Moses prescribed that the Ark of the Covenant be carried. It's very clearly spelled out in the Torah, right? But number two is they, they brought it on a new cart. Do you remember where we've seen that before? It's when the pagans are figuring out what to, deal, what to do with the Ark, and they send it away on a new cart back to Jerusalem. So basically, they're acting like a bunch of pagans and just putting the Ark on a cart, and God says... Whoa, 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 whoa. Before, before we set up the ark, before we enjoy all this great worship around the ark, you need to understand that this represents my holy presence. And where there is inattention to the, to the law of God and his very holy presence, where those two combine, disaster happens. Right? This is why it's such good news that the book of Hebrews says that we can approach the throne with boldness because of the blood of Jesus. But it's only by the blood of Jesus. Like We can't waltz into God's presence, sinful people that we are, and expect to be welcomed there. Right? What we can expect without the blood of Jesus is something like what happened to Uzzah. <laughs> we put our hand there and pff, we're gone. Right? That's what happens to fallen and sinful, dark 
uh, unrighteous beings in the presence of a holy God. But thanks be to God, by his blood, he has made a way for us to appear before God and live. (laughs) This is an amazing thing. So there's a reminder here. David's very excited about bringing the ark to Jerusalem. But there's a sober reminder right at the beginning. This is the holy presence of God. Remember, do not make the mistake that they made back in 1 Samuel where things are going south. Let's get the lucky rabbit's foot here and see if we can win, right? The presence of God is not a means to your end. And God says, listen, if you're going to be flippant with the law, if you're just going to cart me around on some new cart like the pagans, I'm going to do something to get your attention. And that's exactly what he does. And so David's kind of taken aback. They, you know, some time elapses and kind of the shock wears off and they say, all right, let's bring it on poles this time. Let's do it by the book. And they do it. And every six steps, they sacrifice an animal just to be safe. (laughs) When it finally gets to Jerusalem, verse 16, and the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. This is a heart after God. The ark is coming into the city. Uh, we are setting it up. We're establishing worship. And I actually want to turn over to First Chronicles 15. Um, David's joy when the ark comes into the city is amazing, right? He, he dances, it says, with all his might. And this is the first thing I think we should, we should understand. David's, David was most excited, foolishly excited, about the ark of the covenant coming into the land. In chapter 13, 1 Chronicles, This is right when he takes the throne. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. So he's assembled. All right, I'm on the throne. I'm going to assemble all the leaders. And he says, this is his first act, right? His first decree. If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the city that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. All right. Let's get everybody together. Let's unite the kingdom. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. The ark has been, right? It was in the the house on the hill of Amminadab, right? That's where it was at the end of uh, 1 Samuel 6. And that's where it's been the whole time Saul was king. He got, he got spooked, I guess, and didn't want to deal with it. David says, all right, first order of business, get everybody together and let's get the presence of God here. Isn't that awesome? David's first order of business as king, get everybody together and let's worship. All the assembly agreed to do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. What a great reversal of what was, of a final reversal of, of the, the climate of judges. Everybody scattered, doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody gathered, and everybody agreeing what's right together. And what is that? Worshiping God. Bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. Putting it in the middle, and everybody else gathering around it. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great picture? David's priority uh, to worship. Um, I'm going to stay in First Chronicles a little bit, because there's some good details here that have to do with the ark and the tent of David. Chapter 15, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Okay, So this would have been a tent, that, like, kind of like the tent of meeting in the wilderness. It was, a, it was not a permanent structure. The temple was not built until Solomon. David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. 
And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and it goes through, and he, he appoints Levites, the priests, to establish basically 24-7 worship around the ark. Um, he said to them, verse 12, said to them, you are the heads of the fathers, uh, of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. (laughs) That makes all the difference. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments on harps and lyres and cymbals and to raise sounds of joy. One of the Psalms says, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. And this is, this is I think, the most radical reform that David made. He took joy and music and festivity and brought it into the context of the temple sacrifice. Right? No, no one had done that before. All right, we need to appreciate the, 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 uh, the new thing that was going on. Chapter 16 says this. Um, yeah, go to chapter 16, 1 Chronicles. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. In verse 7, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Saul did not sing when he offered sacrifices. And really, I think you could boil down the difference between Saul and David to that. Saul was worried about the sacrifice. Saul forced himself to offer the sacrifice because, man, we've got to get this thing done. David said, let's stop everything. Let's get everybody together. Let's make, this in a, let's make this the best thing about us, the sacrifice. And that was the difference. And God said to Saul, I don't desire sacrifices. I, do, I desire obedience. I desire a heart after me. What does a heart after God look like when it's going about following the law of God? Joyful. Worshipful. Right? Singing while we do it. (laughs) And so it wasn't that David was the first to, to offer sacrifices before God, but David was the first one to do it with a heart of joy. And he actually used his authority to command Levites to make sure that someone is always singing for joy. In the, in the tabernacle, before the ark of God. Verse 8. It's a great song here. Well, let me, let me say a couple things about this. So this marks a key turn in, in understanding God's heart, right, in the people of Israel. Saul did not understand God's heart. That was very clear. David was a man after God's heart. Saul was preoccupied with sacrifice but for all the wrong reasons. Um, David rightly understood the nature of the relationship that God desired with his people. The sacrifice was not like all the other pagans around them. This, This sacrifice was so that God could be with his people. God wanted to be with us. That's why he gave us the sacrifices. He didn't give these to us for the reasons that the pagan gods gave them to them. 
which was, hey, unless you sacrifice this, there's going to be, you're not going to have crops, you're going to be barren, everything's going to go bad for you. Unless you appease the gods with this sacrifice, it's going to go poorly with you. And so pagans would bring sacrifices, and Saul brought, he really did bring sacrifices in a very pagan way before God. David said, wait a minute, this is a God who wants to be with us. And all of his psalms reflect someone who really understands what God really desires. And said, oh, sacrifices are not about just appeasing God so that it might go well with us. Maybe. This is about coming into the presence of God and hanging out here. This is the place to be. The one thing lacking in Saul's reign was true worship. True worship. Um, and this is where I love how Second Samuel, it, it gives a little more detail than First Chronicles does about David's uh, dancing before the Lord and what Michael actually said to him. She said, why are you uncovering yourself like this? He wasn't naked. I think that's, he was luring Lynn and Ephod, right? But she was basically saying, what, what are you doing? This is not a royal thing to do. And David said, don't you understand? I'll, I'll get even more uh, inappropriate than this. Don't you see what's going on? Right? But she was, after, she was one of Saul's household. Right? This is a household who didn't understand true worship. So worship is then established. Joyful worship, right? Not um, fearful, defensive, oh, let's appease the gods, Okay. Joyful worship. It was established as a continual practice among God's people. Um, yeah, let's read this song. This uh, this song in in First Chronicles sixteen. It it's part. Uh, it's repeated in several psalms. Psalm one fifteen, ninety six, and one hundred six. It's kind of cobbled together. But here's what it says the song was when they established, when they put the ark in the tent and put the Levites around it and said, let's have church, right? This is what they sang. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. And if you want to model for worship, if you want to understand what do we mean by worship, when we say, hey, let's worship, this is it, all right? Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Right? A lot of times worship is just saying what God has done. Just say it. Just tell it. Glory in his holy name. I wonder if we know how to glory in his holy name. We know how to glory in a lot of other things. Right? Somebody who hits a game-winning shot knows how to glory in that. Right? Right? That's glorying in the ball going through the hoop. Can we glory in his holy name? Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek, this is a key word, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. I love the song we read. I need thee every hour I need thee. Remember, is another key word in worship. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Worship is basically this. Saying with, saying with your, your heart and then through your mouth who God is and what he's done. When, when, we, when we get together and say, hey, let's, have, let's, let's worship. What we're doing is we are think, getting it in our heart, who God is, what he's done, and letting that come out of our mouths. That's it. It's, it's pretty simple. When we worship... Is nothing more than that. His miracles and the judgments that he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He, they're saying who he is and what he's done. Who he is, what he's done. Listen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. 
See, get into some Old Testament history. That's worship. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you open your mouth and say that and really mean it, you're worshiping God. He's his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Just recounting the promises of God, saying them out loud. When you were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. In other words, God has always been intimately involved in the history of his people. Even when they didn't acknowledge it, he was protecting them. He was with them. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord, right? What's the key difference between the Lord and an idol? The Lord's not made. The Lord's not made up of things that are made. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Right? All the, all the idols of the peoples are in the heavens that God made. <laughs> He's above them and beyond them. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. This is so many just raw materials of worship right here. This is a stockpile, a treasure trove of worship. You should get this stuff deep in your heart. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come worship him. Worship the Lord in the, splendor, in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And the trees, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. All of creation participates in this. Before the Lord, because he comes to judge the earth, give thanks to the Lord. It begins and ends with thanks. Always. It begins and ends with gratitude, thanksgiving. Do you understand this? How powerful thanksgiving is, genuine gratitude. It immediately puts you in your position and enables you to enter the courts of God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. David said, this needs to never stop. This needs to never stop. And I think we need to say to our own hearts, it needs to never stop. That as we leave, physically leave the temple, we need to appoint some Levites to stay there and hang out there and keep offering praise. Right? We need to have some Levites in our own heart. Stay in the presence of God at all times and just always be ministering to him. You understand what I mean by that? Um, it's a constant thing. What David said was important was constant worship of God. Constant worship of God in the middle of all the activity of the people. And this needs to be true in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a community. Um, this is the heart of God. David was tapping into what pleased God. In Acts 15, it says, this is what Jesus came to establish, to raise it up, the tent of David, and the worship that was going on around the tent of David. He left Zadok the priest and his brothers and the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord 
on the altar of the burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, to do all that is written in the law of the Lord that he commanded Israel. And all the people departed to his house, and David went home to bless his household. Um, What we see after this then is David does engage in some military campaigns, and he's very successful. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord brings victory. Right? So he does some of the things that Saul was doing with a much higher rate of success. Why? Because he started with worship. He started with the heart of God. Saul's worship, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, was defensive worship. It was defensive worship. And the fruit of defensive worship is a defensive kingdom. And defeated kingdom. Right? I don't know. I don't know about... I don't know about the sacrifice. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to maintain the favor of all the people. I'm trying to maintain the favor of God. And I don't know how to please everybody. And what that leads to is that's the posture of the kingdom then. The kingdom is, ah, there's little corners that are getting broken into and we can't quite keep this from happening. And we, right, defensive worship leads to a defensive kingdom and, and defeat extravagant, inappropriate worship, what does it lead to? Total victory, expansion, flourishing of the kingdom. And this, is, this was the key difference between David and Saul. Where Saul's kingdom diminished when it was pressed, David's kingdom ends up flourishing when it's pressed. When there's an attack, oh man, a Lord comes and he fights for the people. And then we get to the part of, so this happens, right? This is set up. And now God, David says this. He says, God, I think it's time to take this from a tent to a proper house, right? I feel bad that I live in a house of cedar while the, the, the ark of God lives in a tent. And uh, so let's go to Second Samuel 6. 7, sorry. Nathan said to the king, after David expressed this, wow, you know, we need to, if we really are prioritizing worship, we need to, we need to do something better for the ark, right? Nathan says, go do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. And then something interesting happens. That in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And he said, go tell David... Would you build me a house to dwell in? God says, I don't, I don't know if I want to live. I don't know if this is exactly what I want. He basically says, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a tent guy. <laughs> God said, I've been in tents all along, right? Since you came out of Egypt, I've, my presence has been in a tent. And all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Have I ever expressed a desire to live in a nice house? And so David did. He, he didn't quite understand truly the, the heart of God. I think he had good intentions. And Nathan says, hey, go do what's in your heart. And God comes and he clarifies his heart for him. And this is the, co- the covenant of David. God says, listen, I don't, I'm not really interested in living in a nice house. What I'm interested in is your household flourishing. That's what this is all about. That's why I created Adam, right? To plant him in the garden, that he would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that my image in the earth through my son Adam would increase and expand and grow. And so God says, let me just clarify for you. I bless not so that I can make my name great. I bless mankind. I bless my people Israel so that they will grow and I make their name great so that they will be a blessing. And so God comes and he underscores this aspect of his grand plan of salvation. He says, you want to build me a house, 
what I've been trying to do this whole time, from the creation of the world, is build you a house. To make you a house. So he tells Nathan, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, from pasture to prince. Right? This is Hannah's song. He lifts up the humble. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Right? This is what God has always wanted. Fruitfulness, multiplication. He says, listen, the covenant I'm going to make with you is this. When you die, it's not the end of your house. You will have multiplied. You will have increased. And your offspring I will raise up after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, I don't know if David saw clearly exactly what God was talking about here, but he's talking about his own son. He's talking about Christ coming into the world. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is huge. Okay? What's he saying? The nature of the relationship that I am looking for between me and the people of the earth is that of father and son. Father and son. Saul, I don't think, ever saw himself as the son of God as a son of God. David may have gotten a little closer, but it was not until Jesus came down and called on God as Father that we ever understood what God was really after. But he says it right here to David. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now, Jesus didn't commit any iniquity, but on him was laid the chastisement of us all. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is so significant. This is, this is one of the major statements that God makes in the Old Testament about his ultimate plans. This is why Paul opens the book of Romans with this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul says, Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. God spoke about it concerning his son. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. God promised, David, I'm going to raise up an offspring after you and his kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. So this is just as significant as the, as the covenant with Abraham, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a step forward in the covenant with Abraham, all right? But it brings this element of father and son into God's purposes. And David has a great prayer of humility and gratitude and keeps referring himself to the, ser- the servant of God, your servant, your servant, your servant. And God's saying, I want, to be, I want a son, I want a son, I want a son. And I think of when Jesus told his disciples, he said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Because you know everything that I'm about. I've disclosed the heart of the Father to you. 
And with, when the disciples asked the Son of God how to pray, he said, pray in this way, our Father. All right? Um, but the other thing is this, and this is what Acts 15 really points us to, that God's not interested in a house for himself. God's interested in a house for his son so that the lost, the remnant of mankind, could also have a house. God wants to make his son's house great, great enough to welcome all of the lost sons of the earth. Does that make sense? And so this is what Dave, This is what God wants in the kingdom. He wants a people who are centered on worship, who understand the heart of God, who see themselves as sons of the Father, who receive the immense blessing of God in the expansion of their household out into the ends of the earth so that the lost could come home. And this is the purpose of God. This is the gospel. God is making his house great, the house of David great, the house of his son great, so that the lost could come into the house. Isaiah says, or Jesus says when he goes into the temple, quoting Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Zeal for your household has consumed me. This is the house that God is building. So, David's priority in becoming king, and it remained his priority for the beginning of his reign, was worship. Establishing worship as the center of the people of God. Worship not as an outward adherence to some sacrificial code, but worship as an attitude of the heart a joyful appearance before the presence of God. In obedience, yes, right? Obedience is crucial. Adherence to the law is crucial, but with shouts of joy. And so I want to call us, I think we need to, I I want to call us to think about this in these days. Um, I think it's very important for us, very timely for us as a people. I believe God wants to, and I think that there's some first fruits of it happening here tonight. As we were worshiping, I believe God wants to call us deeper into worship. Um, I don't want to say call us back to worship. I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like saying that, like uh, kind of like hype us back up or something. But I think that God wants us to call us deeper into worship uh, in our individual lives, in our families, in our home groups. Okay, and so I want us to focus on this. Um. And I want to give sort of an exhortation, some direction for us, uh, but then just say a couple other things about worship. So I want us to approach uh, every day, your devotions, say, am I worshiping God? That that would be the first thing. In your own personal devotions, ask yourself, am I really doing this in a spirit of worship? Do I have joy here? Now, joy doesn't have to be a nice feeling, right? But are you honestly, deeply thankful to God to be in his presence? Right? And just consider that. Am I, can I really worship God? Do I worship him with my might? David worshiped God with all of his might. He, all, of that, all of that response that's in us that reacts to amazing things, is God doing that in your life? Are you directing that, that response to awesome things to the, most, to, the, to the one who inspires the most awe? Right? Is your response to God one of awe and, and, and worship and joy? So I want to challenge us as individuals, but I also want to challenge the home groups. Right? One of the primary reasons for us getting together is to seek the face of God together. And our time as a home group would be well spent if we didn't do anything but worship, first and foremost, right? Now, David had a lot of things to, a lot of, the kingdom has a lot of things to, uh, there's a lot of business to accomplish in the kingdom. There's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of practical things, obviously. But David was most concerned with worship. And so I want to I challenge us as home groups to be most concerned with worship. To do business, to pray for each other, to take care of needs, all that's important and good. 
But we're actually not really going to be excelling in any of that if we're not excelling in worship. We're not going to really be loving each other if our hearts aren't worshiping God. If we aren't presenting our sacrifices to God with shouts of joy. Amen? So I want to challenge you to examine your heart in your own walk with God, but also as you approach home group, are you eager to worship with the people of God? Do you understand when he gathers his people, it's like David summoning the scattered children of Israel and saying, here's the ark of God, let's, let's sing together. Let's do this. Um, so I want to call us to cultivate this more and more. You know, this isn't just kind of a one-week thing. This is like, let's, let's layer this on the direction God is taking us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things I think he wants us to do in terms of outreach, discipleship, right? We've got a, we've got a, a lot of great callings on us as a church. Um, but I want to make sure that we bring the ark of God into our midst, first and foremost, and we assemble ourselves together and make sure that we are worshiping him. Um, so I want to uh, exhort us to cultivate this attitude and, and encourage us that, that we will see victory. Right? David cultivated a heart of worship and he was able to look at Goliath and go, let's, let's do this. Right? He was able to um, experience intense persecution and oppression to take refuge in God because his heart was continually cultivated after God. Um, and let me just say this. The Psalms are your best model. The Psalms are your best model for this. How do I worship God? I think if all you did was read 1 Chronicles 16, you're doing a great job. (laughs) In there are so many elements of worship. But 73 of the Psalms are David's. That's no accident. He was a man of worship. Sadly, he also became a man of the flesh and a man of war. And we're going to talk about that some next week. Um, But before we go on to that, we we have to give David his due as a worshiper. And I think we need to stop and ask ourselves, how much of a priority is worship in our lives? And I don't just mean singing, right? I mean, it's a whole attitude. It's a posture that we have before God, all right? And it involves acts of service, um, yes, songs, but it involves a whole host of actions uh, coming from this posture of uh, humility before God. The church that knows, I just wrote this, this is kind of my summary of my thoughts. The church that knows how to offer God true worship will see the increase of God's kingdom, right? David's kingdom is the golden age of Israel. It's because of worship. It's because of his heart after God. It's not because of anything else. And that church that knows how to offer true worship will will declare to the lost that Jesus Christ is the one true God. God is rebuilding the tent of David in the last days. That's, that's one of the things that Jesus came to do. Jesus actually is the tent of David he, in the flesh. He is the place around which we commune with God. Right? He came down and put on flesh and he tabernacled among us. And it's in him that we understand what God is after. Uh, But I do want to say that this is so that the nations, right? One of the biggest things on God's heart is that the nations would know who he is. So if we want our city to know who God is, we will devote ourselves to worship. Because that's what lifts up the house of God and draws people into the presence of God. Amen. I believe God's preparing us for outreach. Um, by calling us to worship. Amen? And that's really, the, that's really what's on my heart. So I want to encourage us to drink deeply of this stuff. Um, dive into the Psalms, especially the ones that are aligned with, the, you know, the, the chart that I sent out, the ones that are aligned with these stories of David. Look at how he responds to life. And get that inside of you. And get the substance of the Psalms. What are the things that we can open our mouths and say to God about who He is and what He's done? Stock your heart with those things so that it can come out in in times of praise. Amen? All right, let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for um, making us a house, God. Lord, thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Lord, thank you for calling us to go and make disciples and to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, But Father, I pray that you would call us to worship in these days. Uh, Lord, I believe that the enemy would uh, seek to douse uh, the flame of worship among us through isolation, through uncertainty, through stress, through current events. Lord, fan it into flame. Fan it into flame, Lord. May true worship permeate our lives, God, and rise to you as a pleasing aroma. God, I pray for our home groups, that they would be full of the anointed presence of God. That you would fall, God. That you would come and meet us, that we couldn't but worship you with all of our might, God. Lord, I pray that you call us to, uh, to worship you like David did. To be so caught up in bringing your presence into the midst of the people of God that some would look on us and scoff. Lord, help us to offer sacrifices in your tent with shouts of joy. Lord, may every act of service that we devote ourselves to be soaked with joy and thanksgiving. Lord, I just pray against drudgery, that you would overcome drudgery with worship, God. That you would overcome passivity with worship, God. Lord, that you would overcome apathy, burnout, stress, God, with worship. That you would set us on fire, Lord, so that the city could see uh, that you are alive in your people. Hallelujah. Lord, anoint this, anoint this week in the coming weeks, Lord. Prepare us truly uh, to take the next step as a church uh, by going deeper into your presence in worship. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.